Our doctor is in, and so are the doctors of Capital Health. Welcome to the all-new Health 411. Every Sunday morning at 10, Dr. Jonathan Karp, along with our respected panel of guests from Capital Health, take you on an important medical journey to help you navigate your health and the healthcare system. To reach your destination, good health. Health 411 is underwritten by Capital Health. Minds advancing medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff as well as the Bronx. 1077thebronc.com proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019, 2021, and 2022 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. And a winner of the 2023 IBS College of Media Award for universities under 10,000 students. We are broadcasting from the Bronx All Digital Studios on the campus of Ryder University in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Welcome to Health 411. I'm your host, Professor Jonathan Karp. This Health 411 program is presented by Capital Health. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of, of, of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the science of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand your knowledge and perspective. Today, we are recording with our student producer, Daniel Geller, and our guest, Dr. Carolyn Gawker. Dr. Gawker is the Director of Palliative Care at Capital Health. Welcome to Health 411, Dr. Gawker. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to have you here to talk about palliative care and other things. Um, so let's let's start for we have undergraduates listening to the program and perhaps other people as well. Um, when I talk to students who are interested in going to medical school, I have yet to one say, I want to be a palliative care specialist. Um, can you tell us about your background and how you found this as, as your area of specialization? So actually, I didn't go to medical school thinking that I wanted to be a palliative care physician. But when I did go to medical school and did my residency training, at Cooper uh, Hospital in Camden. I became very passionate about my geriatric patients and the care that they were being provided. Um, and so I followed a career path of predominantly primary care in geriatrics. Um, and I think that through that experience, I developed a compassionate and empathic approach to the care of the elderly. And through that experience and individuals at Capital Health witnessing how I dealt with the elderly patients, their palliative care program had been initiated in approximately 2005 and they approached me and I knew very little about palliative care, I'm embarrassed to say, up until that point in time. And when I started researching it, I decided that it would be a good segue into continuing my passion and caring for people at the end of life. And in many ways, I wish that I had made the jump much earlier in the realm of palliative care because it is an extremely rewarding, albeit sometimes very sad, um, aspect of caring for patients. Uh, I do believe that anyone who wants to advocate for a patient 
could do it through medical school and going into palliative care, or you could, by definition, palliative care is a multidisciplinary approach to a patient. It's very patient family centric. You could do it through social work or you could do it through chaplaincy. So there are many ways that someone who is passionate about advocating for a patient and what their wishes are and how they want to be treated would absolutely be an acceptable pathway outside the direct pathway of medical school and uh, residency training and palliative care. So how is palliative care different than geriatrics? I don't think palliative care is really different from geriatrics, but there are many aspects of palliative care that extend beyond a lot of the geriatric realm. You have infants and adolescents and younger folks who have life-limiting and life-threatening illnesses that impact on their quality of life. And that is really the focus of palliative care is to really address every domain that an illness has. It's not just the physical aspects. You've got spiritual, religious, financial, social domains of an individual that are impacted by illnesses. And so geriatrics is a subset of palliative care, but palliative care encompasses, you know, newborns to people who are 100 years old. And we can really impact their quality of life and their family's quality of life. Well, just to, to hit, I'm, I'm listening to you, and um, and and, and I, I'm going to ask this out of complete sort of ignorance. Why isn't all medicine palliative care? Well, if you asked me, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, I am asking you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so. Um, I think palliative care in 2023 is very different than when it was in 2005 when I started. Okay, can you tell us a there, little bit about the, there, the similarities and differences? Well, palliative care is much more of a comprehensive gestalt approach to a patient. And the, the, the history of medicine, we've evolved from being very paternalistic and telling patients what to do. And much of medicine can still be like that when patients come into the office and say, doctor, tell me what I should do for this problem A, B, or C. In palliative care, and I think it's becoming more uniform throughout some of the younger um, generations of doctors, but they still have a long way to go, is that we are listening to patients and learning about their values and their preferences about life. And with knowing an individual, we can then really talk about and address, you've got three options but be, or more, but the, the options that are available if this is who you are, this is how you're describing those values that you hold near and dear, 
then the choice that I think would best suit who you are would be this pathway to follow. And I think that as we're expanding the number of hospitals across the United States that now have palliative care, um, up to 85% of hospitals now have some form. The, the word is getting out that we really need to address the global, the gestalt patient and their family and not just direct care as we have been trained to. We right. need so, to be less myopic. So, so in, the, in the, uh, the language of some people is you're treating the patient and not just the disease. Correct. That's, that's, that's an interesting thing because um, you're an MD, so you have a, a, a medical degree, but that hasn't that for years been sort of what the, the um, osteopathic med, uh, medical schools have been promoting for a while? Is this sort of a blending of that sort of approach? I think it's a blending at that more comprehensive, but I think it's taking it even farther than that and blending the world of psychology and sociology and religion. I mean, we, we really are learning uh, in this multiple diverse country that we now have that physicians uh, and other members of the healthcare community really need to expand on their cultural competency because how an individual with my background and my cultural background would approach death and dying is very different from someone from Southeast Asia, from Africa, from Haiti. And it's really becoming significantly important for the entire medical community to be able to respect and to be able to appropriately address these patients in a very different perspective than what we've been used to over the last 30 or 40 years. And, and that's probably progress. I mean, using your words as the incorporation of the patient's value system and how you deal with them. And I, I'm assuming that also includes, and we'll go into this in our other segments as well, not just the patient, but the patient's family as well. Correct. Patients, family, you know, in many uh, acute care hospitals now, you are seeing more ill, more sick, more patients who don't have the capacity to express their wishes. And so we really need to include families and the appropriate families um, in all of these discussions. Excellent. And I want to tap into a little bit about what those discussions are like, but we need to take a break for some underwriting announcements. We'll be right back with Dr. Gawkler from Capital Health um, and on this Health 411 program. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We're recording Health 411 from the Digital Bronx Studios. Welcome back. We're having a conversation today with Dr. Carolyn Gawkler, the Director of Palliative Care at Capital Health. Dr. Gawkler is telling us a little bit about what palliative care is like, um, not just at Capital Health, but in general. And I'm particularly impressed by um, 
her willingness to talk about how medicine has changed and more and more hospitals are um, including um, sort of the, the psychobiological, sociological, socioeconomic factors that involve patients' lives and treating them as people and not just um, diseases. Um, and Dr. Gawkler said she came into it through the geriatric route, but she also mentioned that the patients for palliative care run the entire age group. So are just elderly el um, um, eligible for palliative care, young adults, children, infants? How does that, who's eligible for it? So everyone is eligible for it. And we actually, you know, Capital Health has a fairly big uh, maternal child health program here. Um, and they're actually members of the palliative care team specifically to support the parents in, of infants uh, and prenatal uh, approaches. Sometimes we know even before a baby has been born that there may be a devastating outcome. And so there are members who are specifically trained in the younger aspects of um, pediatric and um, neonatal care. Fortunately for me, um, because when I have dealt with uh, young parents and infants, it's very emotionally draining. It's, it's especially as a parent myself, to have experienced the, the joy of childbirth and raising kids to um, now in their 30s, to have to um, work with these young adults who are experiencing something that is so devastating, it really has a major impact on us. Is palliative care we, something that has to be prescribed or recommended or referred? Or is it something that just so, happens in certain hospital settings? In um, certain hospitals, as we have in, in Capital Health, Palliative care is something that some physicians, uh, predominantly um, the oncologists, have exposure to palliative care in their training and they're dealing with the patient population, that many of them have life expectancies that are curtailed because of their diagnosis. But many other diagnoses outside of the oncology world, there is usually a palliative care referral that is made. Now, different institutions do it differently. Um, the nursing staff and um, other subspecialties within the care team can refer to palliative care or ask that we get involved with a patient or a family but it is always important to talk to the primary medical team to make sure they're on board. Plus, it's very important not to go into a situation and tell a patient or a family something that is contrary to what someone else has told them because you're almost defeating the purpose of gaining that trust and trying to accomplish the support that that patient or family needs. In our neonatal and maternal child health program, uh, they are much more attuned with the supports that they have. 
And so many of those uh, patients uh, are automatically seen without um, involving a specific request or a consult referral. Do you need to have a terminal? I mean, some people think life is a terminal disease, but do you need to have a, do you need to have a, a terminal diagnosis to be eligible for palliative care? No. Um, palliative care, which includes terminal illness and terminal by Medicare definition is you have less than six months to live. Mm. But okay. anyone who is in receipt of a diagnosis that impacts on their quality of life, their length of life, um, are eligible for palliative care, so to speak. Unfortunately, palliative care in the outpatient setting is not something that we have a lot of insurance funding for. Well, so a lot of what I do is actually within the inpatient setting and outpatient cancer clinics. Um, this is starting to hopefully improve. There is legislation pushing to have better reimbursement. And some of the hospice organizations are doing trials of allowing individuals who have a serious illness but do not have a prognosis of less than six months to live to obtain some of the same benefits in the outpatient world that the dying or hospice patient are entitled to receive. So what's the difference then between hospice and palliative care? So palliative care by definition is sort of enveloping the patient in all sorts of comforts and addressing symptoms. Hospice is the penultimate palliative care when there are no more medical options to either cure, maintain uh, a patient, and or the patient chooses to stop aggressive interventions. In real palliative care, before you hit that terminal phase, you can continue to have aggressive medical interventions, chemotherapy, surgery, dialysis, with the other supports that palliative care can offer, social work, financial assistance, um, AIDS helping you in the outpatient setting. And so there, there are still many aspects to the philosophy of palliative care that you can get with concurrent treatments. But hospice is really when you are terminal, mm -hmm. when you no longer have medical interventions that can change the course of your disease trajectory, your illness. So. So people who are in palliative care, uh, I'm just going to restate basically what you said, continue to get treatment, continue to go to therapy. They see a team of physicians. They might even see a team of social workers and re right. religious people, um, whatever that may be. So it's sort of like you mentioned, the biopsychosocial model of, of health care. Um, 
And do you, are you seeing a spread of it? Like, obviously, you're doing it at Capital Health. Are, are you an island or are other hospitals here in New Jersey and other places doing what Capital Health is doing as well? Other hospitals in New Jersey, you've got a big program at Princeton under the direction of Dr. David Burrell, who's phenomenal. Um, there's a big program uh, at Cooper Um the all of the big tertiary care centers have palliative care programs. Some of them have palliative care fellowships. Oh wow! So uh, so Cooper, so so a medical student now could you do a residency in palliative care? So you can do a fellowship. Fellowship. So okay. most so you do an internal medicine residency or a surgical residency. You need a primary residency. And then you do a one to two year palliative care fellowship. The fellowship became required in 2013. I actually uh, was the last eligible um, board taking class in 2012 where you could grandfather into palliative care with experience. So I had to submit logs to the subspecialty of the American Board of Internal Medicine of hours that I had spent taking care of people with um, death and dying approach to care uh, with recommendations from individuals that I had worked with supporting uh, my application to sit for the boards without doing a fellowship. Wow. So that you cannot do anymore. What, what was the time span between when you graduated medical school and when you like completed residency to when you got your board certification in palliative care? So I, in 1984, I graduated from medical school. I did my residency and chief residency until 88. Mm -hmm. And then in 2012 is when I became boarded in palliative care. It's very interesting how you can sort of, I mean, you you did palliative care for a long time before 2012, sort of, but it's still interesting how you can sort of make a change in your career path so far into a career into, you know, I think that's very interesting. You know, I had um, prior to 2008, when I joined the program at Capital Health, I had my own full-time practice, mm-hmm. primary right, care right, practice. Right. And it was in 2010 or 11 when I became um, full-time in palliative care, although I still have my primary care practice one day a month just to keep my hands in it so that when I retire from this, I may (laughs) still do a little bit of primary care. And I want to hear more about it, but again, we are going to take a break from Health 411 and our conversation with Dr. Gawkler for some underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com, and we'll be right back with Health 411. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We're recording Health 411 from the Digital Bronx Studios. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp here with Dan Geller and our guest, Dr. Carolyn Gawkler, the Director of Palliative Care at Capital Health Medical Center. We're talking about the history of palliative 
palliative care, what palliative care is all about and what it's not. At the end of the last segment, Dr. Gawkler um, talked about that she works at Capital Health but maintains, uh, she also sees patients as well as being the director of palliative care. But we know that she does things outside of Capital Health. Um, Dr. Gawkler, can you tell us a little bit about what those things are and how they're connected to your passion for medicine? So, um, up starting in 2013, one of my um, fellow physicians here, who I had actually trained with at Cooper, who had known that in my childhood and youth, I had always wanted to join the Peace Corps uh, for various reasons, um, did not have that opportunity. And in 2013, Dr. Schabler approached me saying, I go to Guatemala on medical missions and one of the physicians backed out, would you like to go with me? So in 2013, I started this unbelievable journey of uh, volunteer medical services in communities around Lake Atitlan in the center of Guatemala, where there are very poor communities who do not have any health care and or dollars to pay for their health care. And so I have gone sometimes twice a year and actually just got back a week ago Sunday uh, from Guatemala, having had a very successful mission seeing 500 patients in four days. And wow. there's a team that also built 10 houses for families. Wow. And there were five of us seeing those 500 patients. Uh, and we take down all of the medicines. We get donations to buy medicines. And we actually took down about $10,000 worth of medications that we can distribute to those in need. And when I first came back in 2013, very few people at Capital knew that this program had been going on for years. Um, Dr. Schabler was very, um, he's very private. And so I came back and just couldn't stop talking about the impact that this had on my life. And we had gone with his church and that next year, we broke off and I started my own group. And we call it Friends of Promised Land Ministries and have gone once or twice a year since then, with the exception of during the pandemic. We came back March 4th of 2020 and Guatemala closed its borders on March 6th. Hmm. Just wow. on the time, huh? Well, they let you out. They let us out. <laughs> Um, and then with the group that we work with, having been the last medical mission, we just completed their first medical mission since the pandemic started. Oh, very nice. So, are, are the, um, from what you're seeing, uh, and it sounds like you're going to some of the poorer areas of Guatemala, are the medical yeah. things you're seeing down there similar to the medical things you see up here in New Jersey? Or are they different? Um, a lot of them are, are the same, um, but a lot of them we can't treat um, because they don't have consistent health care. But because of 
the environment that they live in. Many of these folks um, don't have stoves. They cook over open flames. So there's a lot of respiratory illnesses. Um, A lot of these folks, again, living in poverty are out and about with all of the animals in the environment and they get parasites and gastrointestinal illnesses that we take medicine down to help treat them and treat the parasites and we give them to everyone we see and every family member at home trying to at least address the the few things we can. Um, I did the second patient. Is immunization therapy one of the things you bring down there? No, we don't bring down immunizations. The one thing that the country does do is they have a good immunization program for their kids. Um, They have offered um, the COVID immunizations, and some of the population is immunized. There are other factors of the population who... Um, have a disbelief about the COVID pandemic. Uh, And because we were working with some of those individuals, we did take precautions with masks and provided masks for all of the patients that we saw and, and protected ourselves. But everyone still wanted to go and really help as many people as we can. Mm -hmm. Have you managed to learn any Spanish? Well, <laughs> there are people around here who will laugh. Um, I have been studying Spanish mm-hmm. um, this year because of the pandemic. Some of the translators that we normally have from Guatemala, their families were a little reticent to allow them to work with us. So I actually took down our own volunteer translators. One of the translators at the 11th hour um, backed out. So I was the one uh, provider who didn't have a full-time translator and I did just fine. Good, I, I know good. enough medical language that I can communicate. And when I have a Spanish speaking patient here, I can converse with them. However, there are rules when it comes to end of life decisions and conversations that are official. I am not an official translator, and so I do utilize an official sanctioned translator to make sure I'm not missing something. So I'm assuming your approach to medicine, the palliative care approach that you described in our earlier segments, um, is something that you, it continues on on your work in Guatemala. Do Do you find it an easier fit in Guatemala or an easier fit here? Is it is it more natural in one place than the other place? Well, I think there's an easier fit here because I don't have that same language barrier. Okay. Um, and I don't have cultural barriers. There is a lot of alcoholism in Guatemala. There's a lot of... Um, abuse in Guatemala of women and young women. And so one year we actually had a social worker go with us and we really benefited from the social worker with a translator helping to 
discuss some of these issues that these young women were addressing with men in their community, their own fathers, their brothers. So you have many of the same, if not worse, atrocities just because of what is culturally acceptable there and not culturally acceptable for us. So it can make it harder down there. Interesting. Um, Because the, the, you know, and interesting because you talk about how important the biopsychosocial model is up here, but there are the idea that there would be cultural barriers to that um, is very interesting, and there are challenges to that approach. Do, do they? Does the the is there acceptance, or do people say I don't want to go be treated there because I don't want my family members to know that you wouldn't experience well, up here? Well, sometimes they do, and it's really interesting. There are different languages down there. So sometimes we have to have a translator for the translator. Oh, so it's more wow. it's more than just Spanish. So there's more than one dialect. Oh, I didn't realize Kachikau. that. Okay, I didn't know that. And so, and the Kachikau translators were all men. So when we're dealing with young women who are complaining of women's issues, they often don't talk about it. And it's after the Kachikal translator leaves that the Spanish translator can just tell by body language that she wasn't willing to be forthcoming with all of the issues. And so we would then try to find a female translator to come in so that we could make sure we were appropriately addressing the issues. So there are women who won't talk about things because the male is present. There are women down there who turn to their brothers or their fathers for the medical decision and aren't willing to talk about it themselves or to to make their own decisions. And I, I would say that might not be I mean, yes, that happens there and it's culturally thing, but we have language barriers here in New Jersey too. And I see some students who often say, you know, why'd you, I say to them, why'd you miss class? And they go, well, I had to go translate for my parents in a medical setting. Hmm. Um, but is that, at the, you're, t- you're telling me that's appreciably different than what you're experiencing in Guatemala? Well, uh, A, there are translators available in hospitals all the time. So students shouldn't be missing class for that because we we have accommodations. Yes, okay. But but the parents may not be accepting of that. Yes. So that can absolutely be the same issue that you find here that we found down there. Cool. Okay, Dan's giving me a signal. We're going to come back and we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Gawker in a few minutes um, after we take some brief underwriting announcements here on L411. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077 The Bronx. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 The Welcome back to Health 411. We're having a conversation today with Dr. 
Carolyn Gockler, who is a director of palliative care at Capital Health, but also does uh, medical um, work down in Guatemala with some of the people who are uh, socioeconomically not uh, uh, able to do things on her own. And she was talking about some of the similarities and differences between um, how her practice is uh, takes place in Guatemala and here in New Jersey. But I have to ask too, has COVID changed the way that you do your palliative care medical approach either here or um, in your work in Guatemala? Well, I think that even before COVID, um, part of palliative care there are also legal and ethical aspects to every medical circumstance. And with palliative care, I had started working with our legal team to really make sure that myself and the other medical practitioners had a real understanding of the, the laws as it pertain to end-of-life decision-making, um, our forms, our pulse forms, our medical aid in dying issues. Um, but with the advent of COVID, it became much more important to really identify legal proxies and to uh, talk about resources which was somewhat disheartening. And fortunately at Capitol, we really never were in a situation where our resources were limited. But I think because of that, it really became important for me to have a better understanding of the legal and ethical aspects. And because of that, um, I'm in a uh, master's program for hospital clinical ethics to oh, try cool. to bring that back to the hospital to promote, again, continued quality care to the patient and families. And for students and who are listening, I just want to point out that one's education never ceases. <laughs> it goes on and on. <laughs> it goes on and on. It's not like you're finished school it, and you're done learning. It does. And sometimes I think, wow, I should shoot myself. I hadn't written a paper in probably 20 years when I started this. I had to write op-eds and papers mm. and I'm thinking, why am I doing this to myself? But it's been, it, it really has been uh, very interesting and um, hopefully um, I'm almost finished. It's actually, <laughs> it's a master's certificate program. Okay. I am not doing the entire master's, which would be another six semesters. That I'm not doing to myself, but um, it's given me a better understanding of basic ethics and yeah. basic approaches to consultation within the healthcare system. And you make you, you make a good point. You, you started the conversation talking about how you treat the patient and 
the patient's family, um, and it includes social workers, it includes religious people, it includes physicians, and the whole the whole team. Why wouldn't that team include um, uh, lawyers and ethicists? And you know, there's there's ethical decision making that is you know sort of the umbrella over sort of the medical decision making that goes on. It seemed like to me that would be a natural extension of what palliative care should be going forward. Well, it, it- it really is, and the the bioethics program here, the bioethics committee, is actually chaired by the director of palliative care. But sitting on that committee um, are our lawyers. Um, at one point, we had community members as well as, you know, our social workers. It's a really um, multifaceted approach to an ethical problem. Now, as the world of palliative care in acute care hospitals expands, I think that a lot of the ethical dilemmas that arise in the hospitals, which many of them relate to decision-making, appropriate decision-making, who the healthcare proxy is, there will be fewer um, consultations, ethical consultations, based upon those dilemmas because palliative care is expanding and many of the palliative care physicians act or the directors act as a liaison to the legal department and risk departments in the hospital, um, which is uh, part of my role as well. And you're making me think too, as as palliative care, as that model becomes more popular, do you have resistance from saying so you're willing to change and evolve and continue your education, but are all your colleagues as, as willing to bring other people um, into the decision-making um, when it comes to their medical opinions and things like that? Um, many of our colleagues, my colleagues. I'm not asking um, you to out anybody. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm not going to out anybody, a, okay. but I will say that I struggle a lot here because when people come into the hospital, they're asked who their emergency contact is and they often then have discussions, the medical team have discussions with emergency contacts who may be a friend or someone identifies themselves as the partner And we translate that to mean they're married, but in fact, they're not. And so it's an unfortunate fact that if we don't communicate with the appropriate legally defined proxy, that individual, that physician, that nurse, they're not only putting themselves at risk, but also the institution. Because healthcare proxies are defined by state statutes. And if we don't follow it, we are setting ourselves up for um, legal complaints when a family member steps forth and say, you know, I'm the son. Why didn't you talk to me? I am the rightful person to be making these decisions. And my mom or my dad or my sister would never have wanted that decision. No, that's interesting. So, so I have I have to ask you this because you, you you sparked this 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 idea in my head. Um, 
pal are the palliative care standard operating procedures um, state governed or are they are, are they are, are, are is there a standard operating procedure for what palliative care could be and should be or is well, it on a case by case basis there there are different organizations within the palliative care world the Center for Advancement of Palliative Care that has defined standards, but there is nothing that mandates specific um, processes. Now, hospitals, if they want to be certified in the delivery of palliative care, whether it's under the Joint Commission or the DNV, there are certain guidelines and regulations that must be satisfied in order to be certified, but those are not required. Oh, Absolutely that, not required. Uh, that's sort of interesting. So, um, th so there's no way for patients to know what the palliative care process would be as they go from hospital to hospital um, in any within a state or between states. Then. Or is that is the standardization is there something that you see happening down the road in the future and we're just not there yet? Well, but I think there are standardizations. Oh, okay. yeah. It's just not mandated. I think those folks and institutions who support palliative care, sort of with little nuances of differences, are uh, pretty much. Okay, so there um, is a, there is an agreement follow. of what best practice would be. Correct. Okay, that's that's sort of what I'm asking. Mm -hmm. um, so. Where do you see the future of palliative care in general, be that in the training or in the day-to-day -day practice of it? Well, I, I think that it's well known that there are not enough palliative care training programs. There are not enough fellowships. And we, what I try to do here is there's a difference between primary palliative care, which is what primary care surgeons, primary care physicians can all do the basic questions of initiating conversations. And then there's secondary palliative care, which is what the subspecialists are. That's who I am. And so we're trying to work with residents. We have a family practice residency that the residents rotate with us. We have a um, internal medicine residency and we work with them on a daily basis on the floors and in the units. And so we're trying to improve on the palliative care awareness, but we've got a long way to go. Excellent. We've got and, a long way to go. And we, I have one last question before we're out of time is, is palliative care something that people can graduate from? Yes, we have. And when I talk to patients, I explained to them that, you know, if we look at a uh, hundred patients, 99.9% .9 of them, this is the pathway that they're going to follow. There's never a hundred percent. And we never want to take away hope. And so the way hospice is determined is we have to define a prognosis of less than six months survival. But people at times have hospice for one, two, three years because we're wrong. And it's not that we're wrong maliciously. We just have statistics that we follow, but each individual patient 
has to be looked at as an individual patient. So there are people who have been home on hospice and they get better and they graduate and they live productive lives for additional years. Oh, that's wonderful. So you can graduate. That's excellent news. Um, Unfortunately, Dr. Crawford, we're at the end of our our conversation time. Uh, Thank you so much for participating on our Health 411 conversations. You've been a great guest. Thank you. This is 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. We are recording live from the Digital Bronx Studios. This program is part of Capital Health and Rider University's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health and healthcare. I'd like to thank again our guest, Dr. Carolyn Gockler, the Director of Palliative Care at Capital Health. If you have questions and or comments about this program or want to make suggestions for future broadcasts, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Remember, you have a doctor's appointment scheduled for every Sunday at 10 a.m. Don't miss the all-new Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp and our expert medical guest from Capital Health. You can listen to Health 411 anytime on demand. Go to 1077thebronc.com slash health411 to listen to past episodes or tune in every Thursday at 9 a.m. to hear the Weekend Rewind edition of Health 411. Health 411 on 107.7. The Bronx is underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology.